Year of Polygamy friends, this episode is going to blow your mind. I'm so excited for you to listen to it. Before you get started, do me a favor. Go to yearpolygamy.com and make a donation on the website. Help support this podcast and show your appreciation. Become a monthly subscriber. Also, and this is even more fun, come to the Sunstone Salt Lake Symposium July 26th through the 29th. Every year we have so many different groups of Mormons who come together and talk about their faith, their beliefs, their differences, their similarities. It's one of the few places that I know where Mormons of so many different kinds can come and coexist peacefully. We'll have plural families, LDS speakers, folks from the Remnant Movement, members of the Community of Christ, former Mormons, never Mormons, and I'm not joking, everything in between, and I mean everything. So come show up, represent whatever kind of Mormon you are or what kind of Mormon you're not. And come, you're never Mormon, come interact with all different kinds of Mormons. We want you there. Go get your tickets now at sunstone.org so you can meet me and a bunch of my fundamentalist friends. And thanks for listening. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I have today a live um, live recording with a live studio audience of my children. Um, I've got my good friend from Benchmark Books who has come to my fancy schmancy studio, Brian Buchanan. Can you say hello? Hello, faithful Yop listeners. Good to be here. <laughs> Yop. There is something I never want to hear again. So, uh... Brian is a good buddy of mine, and he has actually come to my home. Uh, what do you think of this nice, sweet setup, Brian? I've always wondered where the magic happens, so it's 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 nice to see it in in progress. Yeah, um, calm yourself down because it's really exciting, and hopefully <laughs> we won't be interrupted by children, but we might be. So uh, that is, it wouldn't be your polygamy without children in the background. So, Brian, first of all, tell us about yourself. So I work at Benchmark Books, have for about eight years now. So uh, I've long been interested in Mormon history. In a past life, I uh, did Hebrew, which I thoroughly enjoyed, but my interest in Mormon history very quickly consumed that and uh, kind of became everything. So, yeah. And the best thing about Brian, which is probably also the nerdiest thing about Brian, is he collects fundamentalist uh, documents and books and texts. Tell us about that. So I've I found that fundamentalist history is both extremely interesting and not all that well fleshed out yet. And so, you know, when you're doing history, it's always fun to find unplowed ground mm-hmm. and things that people haven't looked at yet or at least need a little more exploring. So I've started a project trying to look at the first 50 years of fundamentalist history, and primarily from contemporary documents. So trying to get as much of journals, correspondence, um, and then our, our subject today, uh, some church discipline. So, Oh, cool. So um, would you be willing, we have a lot of fundamentalist listeners who have a lot of this stuff. Uh, are you taking, are you still searching for some of those documents? Absolutely. And so for the more well-known people, you know, your Joseph Mussers, your some of these guys, it's much easier to find materials. But for, say, the LeBarons or the Davis County Co-op, 
the groups that, um, you know, history hasn't been quite as well fleshed out yet, that would be ideal. So if people have stuff, uh, I would love to see it. Okay, so we'll link to your email on yearpolygamy.com, and we'll make sure that we do that. And then um, Brian is always willing to show you his weird uh, treasure of collections at Benchmark Books. So you can go in. If you haven't, we'll talk about Benchmark again, but that store is super cool. It has lots of old Mormon books. Um, it's in South Salt Lake on 33rd. Well, what's the exact address? So we're at 3269 South Main Street. Okay. Uh, yeah, so we'll talk about that a little bit more coming up. And for for all of you rogue listeners out there who can't follow instructions and don't listen to this podcast in order, uh, that is me not only shaming and reprimanding you, but reminding you to go in order. But if you aren't, Brian, um, some of this is not going to make sense for people who don't have the context. So why don't you give us an overview of what we're going to talk about today, and then let's set it up as if this podcast stands alone. Does that make sense? Sure. So the main subject today will be church discipline happening around 1910. So this is six years after the Second Manifesto, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, but so it's very early on, and so there's there's by no means any group fundamentalist groups or anything yet we're still getting there so it's it's sort of a a proto fundamentalist period okay and this is important because when we talk about history it's easy for us to segment it in our minds right and like you're talking about we break it into the 1910s or 1920s but when you're living it it doesn't really feel that way you don't experience it that way so one of the things that i think is really obvious, but never occurred to me until doing this podcast is after the manifesto, polygamy obviously didn't go away. We have the post-manifesto marriages, but not only did it not go away, but there were still all of these existing polygamous families living polygamy until until their death. And you just don't think about them. You think the manifesto happened, polygamy was done, and it was gone. But really, that is not how people experienced it. So, So set that up for us. We have the LDS church now has to distance itself for a variety of reasons, which we have covered in the podcast, which you can listen to if you listen to in order. Uh, So what happens from there? Yeah, I I was thinking of a good analogy for this is uh, if you have children and you're playing with them, starts to maybe get a little rough or it's getting towards bedtime and you say, okay, we're done. They don't listen. No, no, I'm serious. We're done. They still don't listen. So, you know, it takes a few times of saying we're done before it's really done. And let's be honest, in this subject, it's not really done. But So we'll talk about some... some. Uh, and then, you know, you've given your kids their second anointing, so when you spank them and put them in bed... Exactly. Well, they're and then, still going to heaven. And then, you know, the second oldest starts telling me he's the one mighty and strong, and the first <laughs> is... The oldest is like, no, 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 that's me. Pesky so. kids. Yeah, that's exactly. Bedtime's at our house, so... <laughs> Except for I don't spank my kids, for the record. But continue. <laughs> okay. So... <clears throat> The period we're going to get to will definitely need some context. So our first major event is 1904, the Second Manifesto. So the Woodruff Manifesto of 1890 uh, obviously is really doesn't put an end to polygamy. And to be honest, at least from church leaders' perspectives, is not really intended to put an end to it. And we'll talk about more of that as we go on, but many of the leaders are marrying polarized themselves, they're performing polar marriages, they're encouraging them. Um, so on the, you know, on the general authority level, it's certainly still happening. But even for average members, uh, there's still plenty of plural marriages that are happening. 
Um, I several just in my own ancestry that have been very fun to discover, and most of the rest of the family doesn't know about them. Imagine so that. let's back up and talk about the first manifesto for a minute. In your opinion, revelation or or not or manifesto? Uh, it's a manifesto. Yeah, I mean it. It it comes out of an era when leaders are between a rock and a hard place. They believe as fervently as they possibly can that plural marriage is a divine principle, but they've got political pressures that are increasingly coming down on them. And so they know that what they would like to continue to do is just simply not possible without some sort of compromise, concession, words that are, are abhorrent to them, but they realize they've got to do it anyway. Okay, so um, that's something that still comes up is, you know, that polygamy, it was a revelation to end polygamy. And as we know uh, with the history, of course, that's not accurate. And we do have the, the John Taylor letter, which fundamentalists hold on to for their authority that says polygamy not only is not going to end, it's never going to leave the earth. And that's, God wants it that way. Yep. And that was actually considered a revelation. It is. And what's so interesting is all these different people will talk about and the rationale they use and the defenses they present, that never comes up. And I find that so interesting because obviously later, uh, particularly once John W. Woolley and, and Lawrence C. Woolley are leaders, I mean, not in the sense of, you know, official leaders really, but um, that type of reasoning becomes very important to them. But in this earlier period, it doesn't show up, which is interesting, which is fascinating. Okay, so let's get into it. So now Second Manifesto, also not a revelation? Again, you've got leaders who want to continue to do plural marriages, but it's 14 years after the first manifesto, and it's even more difficult now. And this happens in the context of Reed Smoot being elected as a senator and then being denied his seat, and then followed by a lengthy series of hearings. And horrible, horrible PR. Joseph F. Smith, the church, anyone who goes and testifies in Washington is getting absolutely murdered in the press. And this is tough for them. It's tough for Mormons back at home. Uh, so you have a situation where, again, you've got all sorts of outside influences that are kind of forcing Mormon leaders' hands. So the churches, when you say it's tough for them at home, we're not just talking about they're getting their feelings hurt. Economically, times are hard. Uh, they're not getting a lot of outside business. Uh, the government is threatening to put liens on all their property and, and you know, uh, what's the word I want? Take all their stuff, basically. What are some of the other penalties that they were potentially facing? Well, going to jail. So uh, That too. Later in the period of the hearings, Joseph F. Smith will be, um, let's see, doesn't actually go to jail. I think he's just fined. But there's the threat of, you know, more going to jail, which obviously is fresh in their minds from the 1880s. So, yeah, so the, at the April conference, it's become clear, and Reed Smoot is very much pushing this from Washington, that there's got to be something done that will make it clear that they're, they're serious this time. So a statement is prepared, and Joseph S. Smith reads it in conference. Oh, it's interesting. I, you know, we talk so much about the Second Manifesto, but as I was starting to look into this, this period, I couldn't remember what it said. 
So thought it might be interesting to read. It's fairly short. So Joseph Smith and Conference. Inasmuch as there are numerous reports in circulation that plural marriages have been entered into contrary to the official declaration of President Woodruff of September 26, 1890, commonly called the Manifesto, which was issued by President Woodruff and adopted by the church at his general conference, October 6, 1890, which forbade any marriages violative of the law of the land, I, President of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, hereby affirm and declare that no such marriages have been solemnized with the sanction, consent, or knowledge of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and I hereby announce that all such marriages are prohibited, and if any officer or member of the church shall assume to solemnize or enter into any such marriage, he will be deemed in transgression against the church and will be liable to be dealt with according to the rules and regulations thereof and excommunicated therefrom. Okay, so the wording there is also interesting. You'll notice that we don't really talk about God. We don't talk about covenants. We talk about the church. We do. And notice he says, no such marriages have been solemnized with the sanctioned consent or knowledge of the church. So there's a very clear distinction there that the church as such, as a body, as a whole, doesn't sanction it. That doesn't mean that individuals don't sanction. Nor does it mean that God, angels, or any witnesses. Yep. There's there's no mention of, of what... Uh, management thinks of this upstairs. So. Right, and this would be in line with the fundamentalist theory that the church is just a corporation. Again, they call us the corporate church. Uh, this language, I, I would think, sort of backs up that, that, that thinking, which is the church is separate from the spiritual salvation of people. The church is just a business, and the church isn't going to sanction breaking the law. Sure. And in fact, John Henry Smith will basically deliver on a silver platter this line of reasoning later in one of the trials, which okay. I found very interesting. The other thing that's interesting about the manifest, this second manifesto, is up until the last you know two sentences, it's very much the same thing as the 1890 manifesto. However, he will be deemed in transgression. There's talk of excommunication. So this time, there's discussion of some some discipline, some penalties that are attached to continuing in it. That wasn't there before, so that does make a difference, and that will obviously become hard and fast here as we go along. So just like the government sort of ramps up their uh, laws and rules and regulations to fight this, the church sort of follows suit, and they add some teeth to the Second Manifesto, as they say. Absolutely. One interesting thing also is, so he, he, presents, the man, he presents, the, presents the statement there, and then several different leaders will um, second. I mean, it's a very, very parliamentary procedure type of thing, which, again— this is this is a business matter more than it is really a spiritual matter. But uh, one of those is Anton Lund, and he says, uh, Now it has been laid before you, and the church, by its vote in its solemn assembly, has ratified this resolution, and the saints know just where the church stands on this question. So, and then he says, If any come to you with such rumors, you know that the church is true to that which it accepted 13 years and six months ago, and which it, it has again ratified here in this conference. It is not a new manifesto. It simply shows where we stand as a church. Okay, and again, this is so interesting. So we had, now we start to see this divide that, of course, predates this, but polygamy has always divided the saints in a sense, in that before it is seen as the upper class, the most faithful, the most righteous, the most connected. The, um, they are the plural families. That doesn't change, but now there starts to be a shift where those who aren't living polygamy have a chance now to take that spot of being maybe the, the most righteous, the most upper class. 
And yet the wording where he says, the members know where we stand on this. That's such an ambiguous thing because, of course, all the members knew where they stand. And each, depending on how they were living, each would interpret that differently. So plural families would say, yeah, we know where we stand. We can't say this publicly. Nothing has changed. And we're just doing what we've always done, which is deny it publicly and practice it privately. And then now the members who are now looking for standing in their church... um, finally get a chance to be something, uh, not maybe be the less elite. And now they also know that the church is moving away from it. Is that a fair assessment? Yep. You get to take that statement how you want. So, you know, your average Mormon might be listening to this and think, oh, okay, we're, we're really done here. And throughout the 1890s, you have all sorts of different opinions as to what the original Woodruff Manifesto meant. So did that mean... Absolutely no more marriages, or maybe some quiet marriages, or some cohabitation, no cohabitation. You have all sorts of differing opinions, and that continues. Yes. I, some would say to this day. Some might say up until the very present day. Yes. Go on. Okay. Um, another thing that I found interesting is that, uh, you know, again, depending on who you know, you might know that some of the leaders have been marrying, but you might not. And so throughout the 1890s and up until the Second Manifesto, you have seven apostles that have married plural wives and a possible addition of Wilford Woodruff. So it's at the highest levels, it's continuing as much as ever. But then again, down in the the rank and file, there's hundreds of marriages that have taken place during this. Mike Quinn estimated that 90% of those uh, quote-unquote, directly involved church authority. So, I mean, this is not rogue by any means. This is very much authorized polygamy during this period. But not necessarily by the church. The church does not sanction this. And they're very clear all along that, you know, this is these are individual matters and people take the, the responsibility on themselves. Now, again, I would say critics of the church and some, some faithful members at the time would possibly determine this fits under lying for the Lord. I think it's a little bit different. I think it's this double speak that we have as Mormons, the sacred, not secret language. To them, that careful distinction is important. And I still see it in fundamentalist groups today where, uh, I'll just give you an example with the FLDS, for example. Um, I was talking to a faithful FLDS and I said, I heard so-and-so is running, um, you know, this group in lieu of being uh, a bishop being absent and they said no that person is not a part of us and I was like oh that's strange because I'm pretty sure that they are running things um, in the FLDS and then I talked to other members of the FLDS and they said yeah a part of us means they've been set apart so they're not a part of us anymore and it's this sort of like double speak language that is still used today which is very much a Mormon thing I think if you know what they mean you know what they mean but someone <laughs> who is not used to this if they're just hearing it cold it's it's a totally different matter. Exactly. Okay. Next interesting point. Um, um, let's see. Month after that, there's a form letter that's sent to all of the 12. Most of them are based in Salt Lake, but you have several that are kind of out and about. The key ones, of course, being John W. Taylor and Matthias Cowley. So uh, President of the Quorum of the Twelve, Francis M. Lyman, sends them a letter just kind of summarizing what had happened with the Second Manifesto. And then he end, he says, 
Uh, we want it distinctly understood that infractions of the law in regard to plural marriage are transgressions against the church punishable by excommunication. So making it clear, just in case you weren't in town for conference, uh, we're getting serious about this. Then a couple months after that, very interesting, in a quorum of the 12 meeting, Lyman again said, he felt that the manifesto of President Wilford Woodruff had relieved us from further responsibility so far as plural marriages are concerned. So as we go along, we'll see that in a lot of ways, Lyman has very different opinions than some of his colleagues in the 12. Why do you think that is? He is such an enigma. Um, I was talking to Leo Lyman the other day about him, and uh, he and, and Heber J. Grant, to me, are the most fascinating characters during this period because both go from staunch advocates and defenders of plural marriage to after the second manifesto becoming probably the two most active in trying to stamp out new marriages. And what is it that makes them change? Is it just authority? Is there is you know more to the, the situation? Were they spurned by a plural wife? Dun dun dun. We'll never know. Well, Grant is definitely trying to to marry a, a new plural wife right up until the second manifesto. Um, in fact, he's sent over to Japan to open a mission there, and good part of that is because he is such a staunch advocate of plural marriage. So somewhere right around this period, there's a, there's a change of mind that happens for both of them. And it's interesting, too, when you look at Joseph F. Smith, who we've talked about, he at one time battled very publicly for years his own cousin, Joseph Smith III. So Joseph, Joseph F. Smith is Hiram's son. Joseph Smith III is Joseph Smith's son. Uh, and they have very different positions on polygamy. Joseph Smith III, of course, is taking his mother, Emma Smith's position that his father never practiced it. And Joseph F. Smith goes publicly for years and years and years. In fact, he's responsible for the affidavits, for collecting the affidavits of the plural wives. And so he's there fighting for plural marriage, and then all of a sudden he's in this position with the Second Manifesto. And after the Second Manifesto, and during the period of these trials, he is noticeably absent. There is, there is no comment. There's no presence, really. And you can very easily see why. He's got conflicted feelings. He's had a very controversial past with it. I mean, you can see why he's not going to want to be directly involved. And his name will be invoked by several of the people who are brought before the Twelve, saying they felt like he had given them authorization. And so uh, he's a very interesting figure, for sure. And I think it would be a truly awful time to be a church leader. <laughs> Not that any of it is fun, let's no. be honest. But No, this is a tough period. And remember, these aren't just random people that are going to be disciplined. These are friends, these are cousins, these are nephews. I mean, these are these are close Ad- friends. Adopted sons through the law of adoption, some of them. Absolutely. Men that have gotten their second anointings who are promised salvation. Yep. It's a tough time. Absolutely. All right. Next important thing, October 1904, another letter is sent, this time to John W. Taylor and George Teasdale. So Taylor is fairly well known. George Teasdale is uh, an apostle who spends much of the 1890s down in the Mexican colonies and seems to perform quite a few marriages, encourages quite a few others. So he, along with with Taylor and Cowley and Mariner W. Merrill, those are kind of the four that are 
kind of most scrutiny at this period. So a letter goes out to them, and it says, uh, talking about authority that had been granted by Wilford Woodruff and possibly Lorenzo Snow, which has, quote, been exercised quite freely to the present time, unquote, and then tells them, quote, the Council of First Presidency and Apostles have now deemed it expedient and wise to withdraw this authority from those brethren, leaving it solely in the hands of him who holds the keys thereof. So basically telling them, yeah, in the past there was authority granted, everything was was okay, but now we're pulling that authority back in and, and centralizing it. And again, this is so complicated because this is a hard cat to put back in the bag, if you will. Decades and decades, sermon upon sermon, there's a revelation behind it. I mean, this is, yeah, this is not something that you can just say, uh, you know, you can wear pants to work now and that's that. And if you can transfer authority by putting your hands on someone's head and saying words that don't necessarily have to be documented, as we know, because there's no documentary history of their original priesthood. Exactly. Exactly. It gets a little hard to contain this. Mm -hmm. Yep. Lots of things going on behind the scenes. And depending on who you've known, who you've talked to, your personal experiences, it's going to be very different from the, the person sitting next to you in a quorum meeting. So. Well, and I want everyone to think about their own church experience if you grew up Mormon. So you're sitting there in church. Your bishop says something over the pulpit. Later on, you recall it to a group of friends, and they say, well, my bishop said this. Well, guess what my bishop said? And this is how a lot of doctrine and theology is passed for Mormons, right? That we just We all have what our leader said, and to us, that becomes scripture. Yep. Very good lead-in to this one. So December 1904... You have two counselors down in the Wayne Stake presidency talking about polygamy. One tells the other one that Matthias Cowley had been sent to talk to their stake leaders about the manifesto. Cowley told them Apostle Lyman stood alone on his construction of its meaning and was not in harmony with the rest of the apostles on that subject. Now, two years later, these counselors now become the president and the first counselor. And uh, there's seems to be quite a bit of plural marriage going on down in that area. And because of their personal understanding of it and their stake, there's not a lot of discipline that goes on. And it's so interesting to see how these little enclaves will form around kind of the Wasatch Corridor. Another big one is the granite stake in Salt Lake. So the president there, Frank Y. Taylor, son of John Taylor, first counselor, uh, John M. Cannon, nephew of George Q. Cannon, both of them take uh, very late plural wives, married by Matthias Cowley. And you can imagine, uh, they're not going to be terribly active about going after post-manifesto marriages. And just as a refresher for those who grew up in the LDS tradition, Matthias Cowley is not a name that you would hear often. He's not like J. Reuben Clark or something like that. However, if you grew up in fundamentalism, you would hear about him. He was an apostle. He was very much an apostle, along with all of the other prominent Mormon names that we knew. But because of this, things go south for him. Yep. Oh, one other important figure I forgot in the stake. A high counselor is Mr. Joseph White Musser. So this stake is is uh, a very nice place to live if you're someone who's married late. And uh, as I started thinking about this idea of these little enclaves, it reminded me there was an article in Sunstone about developments that took place in the RLDS church during the mid-80s. So you have ordination of women, you have some other quote-unquote progressive changes that happen. In the 1980s. In the 1980s that are not 
terribly welcomed by more conservative members. And so they would do very much the same things. They would build these little enclaves of people who felt similarly and then try to write it out, but didn't quite work. So, you know, depending on where you live and who's in leadership, it's very different. So this is leadership roulette, 1905 style going on. And not only that, but this is at a time when there was a lot less, I would say, central control from Salt Lake in the sense that you had these guys living and interacting with people all over the valley, all over Utah. And so you would have had probably more interactions with an apostle than you would today. Do you think that's fair to say? Absolutely. It's a smaller church and relationships among the general authorities were a lot more prevalent than they are today. So, you know, I mean, today to find someone whose cousin is an apostle or something, you know, that's not terribly common. But at that point, huge families, smaller church, most people know one of the leaders, if not several of them, quite well. So it's, you know, it's a very tight-knit network, which also makes things more difficult. Okay. And, of course, I'll just say this. What changes is these manifestos, once they get rid of polygamy publicly, baptisms skyrocket, and the church blossoms like a rose, if, as far as membership goes. They've finally gotten out of debt. The smoot hearings are tough, but at the same time, um, you know, the, the legislative pressures have been taken off. Property is back in their hands. So uh, there's a lot of the pressure from the 1890s that has lessened. And so it's a much better time. And yeah, things start to, to look up for leaders. Okay, next important event, April 1905. Uh, a state president reports that one man votes against leaders during the general conference. But then he refers to, along with this comes a faction who hold the plural marriage ought not to have been stopped. So this, as far as I could tell, the first time that anyone really starts to mention a group. So, you know, it, it's hard to tell what exactly he means because he's talking about, you know, a bunch of them would come and vote against leaders and that didn't happen. So he may have just been overplaying things. But it was the first time I could find that a reference to a, a, some sort of group that's opposing the, uh, the cessation of plural marriage, which I thought was interesting. That is interesting. Then a month after that, we get our first excommunication that was in some way tied to polygamy. So this is John T. Clark, famous One Mighty and Strong from the, the One Mighty and Strong episode. So that's, that seems to be the central idea is him thinking he is the One Mighty and Strong. But he, so this isn't mm -hmm. just about him being sealed. This is a threat to church authority. And I think that that's important, correct? It is. Well, and he, he sends a letter to some leaders and he refers to the manifesto as a covenant with death and an agreement with hell. That doesn't go over well. So that's, that's a, as far as I could tell, we, that's our first excommunication that, that We just need to digest with. that. And a fundamentalist, you can put this on a t-shirt, that the manifesto is a covenant with death and a... And, a, and an agreement with hell. An agreement with hell. Put that on a t-shirt. Seriously. So then uh, October 1905... It becomes more clear, and again, with pressure from Reed Smoot back in Washington, he's got all of his colleagues in the, uh, in the Senate, even the president, wanting him to do something here. So they have a series of meetings about John W. Taylor and Matthias Cowley. So clearly they are definitely the most active, taking plural wives and particularly performing ones and encouraging others to perform them. And so, again, these are apostles in the quorum. So now the quorum's saying, what do we do about our two other quorum members? So let's put that in perspective. Let's say today that uh, Uchtdorf and Bednar go off the rails. The LDS church is going to have little quorum meetings that don't include them to say, 
What do we do about Oopdorf, the silver fox, marrying all those plural wives behind our backs? It's a good two choices because um, these are both very popular apostles. They seem to be good speakers. They're charismatic. Um, John W. Taylor, like his father, seems to have a, a revelatory streak to him. So he, he's more in touch with the kind of the visionary spiritual side of things than maybe some of his others. And, and they're definitely loyal company men. Oh, absolutely. They're both, you know, several generation members. They're, uh, they've been involved in church leadership, missions. I mean, you know, everything they could do. Yeah, they're, they're not weak or, uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're held in very high regard really by everyone. So we've got to figure out what to do with them. And uh, so there are resignation letters that they sign. Later in life, Matthias Kelly claims that um, Charles W. Penrose, another apostle, actually writes them, and then they just sign them. I could see it happening. It, it's tough with no contemporary evidence to say much more about it, but I found that point a little interesting. What, what would you suggest as an alternative theory? <sighs> I mean, Taylor and Kelly both by this point, can kind of see the handwriting on the wall. They can see that, really, the Smoot hearings are what are driving this. Had Reed Smoot not been elected senator, had the hearings not happened, this three-year period of 1904 to 1907 would have looked very, very different. And I, you know, I have compassion for them because if you grew up knowing John Taylor or Brigham Young, as these men did, and you had been to their sermons, you had been in their private councils, you had seen the revelations, you had talked about the importance of plural marriage, you have taught it yourself, you had sacrificed for it yourself to see your friends cave to government pressure. That might make you mad. And I could see why they would feel um, stubborn about this. Absolutely. And more so in private settings than in meetings, um, some of the other apostles will occasionally express sympathy for them. Um, there, I was trying to find this letter. There's a letter from Heber J. Grant, while I think while he's in Japan, to, I believe, one of the other apostles, where he talks about the case very uh, candidly and says, we all could have been there. Uh, you know, the, this, this really, they're not that much different than the rest of us. So you can see that there's definitely some sympathy, but it increasingly becomes clear that something is going to be done to restore a good public image and allow Smoot to take his seat. And we really do see at this point, in my opinion, a shift from the church focused on being God's true kingdom on earth and being peculiar to let's be practical about this. Let's be smart. Let's be strategic. Let's make sure that we're more mainstream now. And I think that this is where I see the shift happening. Absolutely. Um, Kathleen Flake wrote a book right about this period the politics of American religious identity that is just fantastic. And that's exactly the point she makes, that this is the watershed where Mormonism ceases being an isolationist religion out in the Wasatch Front to becoming more assimilated and really starting to grow and spread. So that's, yeah, I think that's, that's an important point that definitely is behind all of this. So Taylor and Cowley are, are dropped, and Mariner Merrill, another uh, very active marrier of people and being married himself dies. So we've got three positions to fill. And so we've chosen are David O. McKay, George F. Richards, and Orson F. Whitney. And a point that gets made all the time in history is that all three of these are monogamists. So we're, we're clearly making a statement here. 
but it's not at all that simple. Well, and explain why this would be a big deal, because why would calling monogamous into the quorum be a big deal or strange or different? Well, I mean, this is the first time, really. I mean, you've got both at home. You've got the, the Salt Lake Tribune is on Mormon's case constantly. You've got national magazines and papers who are eager to pick up on anything happening during the Smoot hearings. It's, it's hard to think about it now, the, you know, the hearings about seating a Mormon senator from Utah being this big of a deal, but they were huge. I mean, na- nationwide, the press is big. And so to be able to say, hey, we, you know, we, we have choices to make, and look, we're, we're choosing monogamists, and see, we're, we're really, we're making changes. And not only that, but what I, the statement I said earlier, if that made any of you uncomfortable about how plural families were sort of the elite, the higher class Mormons, and this gave uh, monogamists an opportunity, I think that this backs up my theory, which is here we start to see, oh, guess what, men? If you're a monogamist, you too can be in the apostleship. You know, Carolyn Pearson talks about in her book, uh, The Ghost of Eternal Polygamy, she talks about hearing about her ancestor her great-grandmother's life being destroyed by polygamy because her husband took another plural wife behind his back because he felt such pressure for his salvation and for her salvation. And now all of a sudden, that pressure that those early saints felt is out the window. Yeah. So that's that's the, the public message that's being sent. However, um, George F. Richards is an interesting guy. We'll, uh, he'll come up at least one more time, but... He has at least one woman sealed to him after she's dead, and he'll encourage that for others down the road. Um, Orson F. Whitney really wanted to take a plural wife, and he's actively courting plural wives apparently into the 1910s, but quietly enough that it doesn't get him in trouble. So yes, they are technically all monogamists, but uh, again, polygamy dies hard. So, Okay, so we put in the three new apostles. Then in June 1906, George F. Richards visits a state conference and records calling all the leadership together, and he catechized them as to their support of President Smith. So it's becoming more routinized here. I mean, we're, we're, we're actively asking people, will you support the Second Manifesto? And you see this as they're, you know, they're constantly outgoing to state conferences. This becomes a big theme. Are you going to fall in line with this. And again, I don't think we can highlight the irony of this enough where polygamy becomes the ultimate loyalty test for almost a century. Now, denying polygamy becomes a loyalty test. And, and that's actually the phrase that they use. Um, later, Richards will be, will be president of the Salt Lake Temple, and he hears about workers that are taking on new wives or, you know, some way associated with And so they write a loyalty oath and have them sign it. So, I mean, it, it's very much a, a, a formalized process that starts to happen. So, so anytime, I'm just going to point this out, anytime you hear the phrase that the church is, never changes, this is a great example <laughs> right here. Yeah, that's you go through this, and all you need to do is change some names, change the date, and the situations are not very different. Yeah, they're just uh, reflections of each other. That's why history is so fun, right? Um, okay, October 1906. Uh, they used to do this more, but in, in context or in connection with general conference, they would have special priesthood meetings. So they would get as many of state presidents, bishops that could easily get to Salt Lake come. And I mean, two years after, two and a half years after the second manifesto, we're still, this is a big thing. 
So First President Counselor um, John R. Winder, again, reads the Second Manifesto. And then, this is very interesting, he talks about, there are rumors going around, quote, that there is an inner circle where these things are better understood. There, there's no inner circle. And at the end, he says, you know, I'm speaking just for myself. And apparently, Joseph Smith gets up and says, you're speaking for all of us. So, oh, wow. Yeah. So clearly, this idea that, again, if you're elite, if you're on the, in the know, it's not quite how it appears. So th- this idea is very prevalent. And this is what will help fuel the growth of fundamentalist groups. I'm so excited for you to put this in a book, by the way. This is great. It's such a fun period. Um, and it's the problem is, is there haven't been too many records that were available that allow you to really pick this apart. That was the reason that Mike Quinn's article on Dialogue was so fantastic is because he had access to the nuts and bolts. Journals, letters, correspondence, minutes, you know, all the, the good contemporary stuff that allows you to really paint a good picture. Uh, that, that article, I, so I read through that and it's... And we can link to that. Yeah, such a fantastic article. And obviously he's got a book coming that he, he talked about from, from the U on this period too, which will be fantastic. So, okay, now let's move ahead. January 1908, the Salt Lake Tribune, everyone's favorite newspaper. They report a plural marriage of Joseph M. Tanner. Now, it's interesting. So his wife is Annie Clark, who writes Mormon Mother. So one of the the most well-known and really sad memoirs of what it was really like to be a plural wife. She she felt abandoned. She felt like, you know, she really, she was mainly a single mother. So, So anyways, they report his marriage, and that's a big deal. And from then on, the Tribune is just relentless on publicizing plural marriages. Any hint they get, it's there. And, you know, again, we're trying to make this transition to being uh, assimilated American church. But these rumors of plural marriages, the ghost of it, just will not leave Mormons alone. And so every time the Tribune publishes... I mean, it would help if their own apostles would stop doing it, but yes. You have, again, this rock and hard place. They... They want to continue it. They're, you know, more so on an individual level now trying to, but it's just, it's not working. And it gets worse and worse as time goes on. So then here's the big one. July 1909 from George F. Richards Journal. At the council meeting this morning, President Smith appointed President Francis M. Lyman and elders John Henry Smith and Heber J. Grant a committee to investigate the matters. So they give them pretty much any authority they want. They can call in anyone they want. They can call in other apostles to help them. And that night, the committee meets for the first time. No grass grows underneath their feet. Now, wait just a minute. Yeah. 1909. 1909. First manifesto, 1890. 1890. It takes them, what, 19 years? This is 19 years before it really gets serious. Okay. And again, if you don't have the smoot hearings, if the Tribune isn't constantly publishing reports about this... It probably goes on uh, behind the scenes for much, much longer. So, again, outside forces are forcing the hand here. So the next day, after this committee is, is formed, then they start calling people in. And this is where it's fun because you get testimony 
and you can see blow by blow how this plays out. So that's where we'll, we'll spend our time here. Um, before I get into that, though, I wanted to throw in one fascinating thing. So remember, you've got all these apostles um, acting in essentially a judicial force here. I mean, we're, we're, playing, we're playing court here. But behind all this, George F. Richards writes in his journal, I had a private conversation with President Francis M. Lyman, in which I expressed the thought that it would be well for members of our Council of Twelve who have but one living wife to have some good dead women sealed to them while they are here and can look after their own interests, as I have done. And perhaps President Lyman could present it to these members in a way that they would take no offense. I would have my brethren avoid the disappointments which must follow neglect of opportunity. So the whole time this is going on, it's not that they don't believe in plural marriage anymore. Absolutely not. It's, it's political exigencies that are requiring to do it, but f- don't ever think that they don't believe in it. Rock in a hard place is such a great way to say it. And, and it's interesting when you think of the metaphor, a stone rolling forth cut without hands, sort of getting stuck into a corner, right? Where you have people that this, they have been told and have taught that it's the most essential doctrine ever. And now here we are. And so sealing, dead sealing seems like a good loophole, especially with this belief. And this is still very prevalent in fundamental circles today that, uh, and I think it comes from John Taylor that there should never be a year without a child being born, f- with, you know, from plural marriage. This might be a way to perhaps find a loophole in the system while still obeying the law. How can we keep this doctrine alive without getting beat up in the press and courts? As well, without losing our temple, without, without losing yeah. our status. I mean, yeah. like we kind of scoff at that now, but I mean, when you're running an organization, that is one of like 101 of running an organization is how to pay your bills. So, yep. All right, let's move into the the really fun stuff now. What happens when they start calling these guys in? So the first one we're going to talk about is Joseph W. Musser. So you've obviously talked quite a bit about him before. Such a key figure. And he is, he's a very smart man. He's well-read. His father had worked in the historian's office for many years. So I imagine the family had a pretty good-sized library. So he's he's a well-read. He's a well-spoken guy. He's another guy that, you know, people just universally seem to like. Probably he seems to have quite a bit of personal charisma. And seen as a fundamentalist hero today, a sort of a prophetic figure. Absolutely. In fundamentalism. Yep. That's, this is, uh, it's a good thing they named him Joseph. Name the important guys Joseph. It makes things easier. So he writes in his journal at great length about what happens when he's called in. And as I read it and I compared it to the other actual trial minutes, it seems like he may have had a copy of them. Because it, it's phrased the same way, it's structured the same way. Um, and and just as a side note, sorry to keep cutting in on this, but Joseph Musser is also accused of copying the temple ceremony. So Joseph Musser is known for uh, getting copies of things and having he, them on hand. He was a record keeper. He, he did was not, a record keeper. He did not throw things away, that's for sure. Good for him. So they ask him if he had heard of anybody uh, claiming that people could get in now, and he puts get in in, in quote marks, and everyone knows who's talking about it. Is there a way that you can still do plural marriages? I said, I presume I could go out onto the street and find 200 people who had claimed that. <laughs> who are they? And that's it's so interesting because you can see all the way along, 
more and more info gets to them, they realize this is much bigger than they thought. It's, it's much more entrenched than they thought. It's going to be much more difficult to stop this than they thought. And then they ask, why should they claim it? Because it's generally understood that many were permitted to get in since the Wilford Woodruff Manifesto. And that being true, the people think the opportunity is still open. Again, when you're telling your kids, no, we're done playing. Come on, Dad. You're not, you don't really mean it. We can keep playing. But you let Woodruff stay up until midnight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing is they're, they're, the leaders realize that their, their credibility has taken a big hit between 1890 and the present. And that will come up again and again. And, and they realize that they've got to get credibility back. And so this is part of their effort to do so. They then ask him if, so remember I mentioned earlier, he's a high counselor in the granite stake. So they ask him if President Frank Taylor or John M. Cannon, stake president and counselor, have talked to him about this. And he dodges. And uh, we see this again throughout these trials. Uh, if they don't want to answer a question, they do pretty good footwork to get around it. And it's, it's very much not unlike Joseph F.'s testimony in the Smoot hearings. He tries to get around and frustrates the, the senators that are questioning him. They start to think, man, he should have been a lawyer. He's, he's good at this. So Then they ask him, who could perform such marriages? Answer, I didn't pretend to know, but President Smith had the keys and could authorize them if he desired without consulting anyone. Again, Joseph F. Smith is not there, and uh, there's reasons for that. There seems to be, and, and Mike Quinn points this out, is there seem to be very good documented cases where he does authorize in very, very limited numbers uh, for associates to perform some marriages. So, again, there's depending on who you know, what you've heard, things are very different from other people. Then they ask him, have you taken additional blessings during past five years? Again, if you don't know the background to this, that's a very odd question. They're clearly asking, has he taken additional wives in the last five years? I can't answer. This is great. And this chorus of brethren, that shows that he has. They're, they're wonderful. I, I was thinking, you know, this whole thing would make a great lifetime movie. You've got, you've got guys in masks. You've got forgery. You've got making your sister lie for you. All sorts of fun things scattered throughout. Pregnant here. women. Pregnant women, and we hide heartache, them. And we secret passages. Secret passages. Spies from the Tribune. Spies from the Tribune. And really, if you had a good writer, this would make a fantastic movie. And so he, he won't answer if he's taken additional wives, but he has. So he'd married one in 1907. Possibly Matthias Cowley, possibly not. We'll talk about that more later. Then this is great. Lyman tries to get Musser on board. He says, will you, will you come with us? Help stamp out any of this talk of, of plural marriages. Musser says, President Lyman, I can't do that. But I suggest if you have any instructions to give me, it should be done through my stake president with whom I am in harmony and will endeavor to remain so. Stake president's got his back. So again, this, this enclave, depending on where you live, if your leader is on board, you're great. And, and plural marriages will probably continue to happen in the area. If they are more of a Francis Lyman attitude, it's getting shut down. And I'm going to say this, and this is controversial, but this has absolutely been my experience. I've heard from multiple people that the, that that is still the case. Uh, it is generally known that in some areas, and I'll just say one in particular, southern Utah, for example, 
Uh, the, a lot of the leadership down there has, quote, this is what was told to me, independent ways, which means they know that some people in their board might be independent fundamentalists, polygamists, and they sympathize. Yep. Leadership roulette is not a new thing, that's for sure. So they complain that the way that Musser is answering these questions sounds very much like the other people they've had in before. And I tried to dig out more, you know, this is, I mean, this is really, really early in the process, but they've clearly already had a few people that have come in and told them things. And uh, they wonder out loud if they're rehearsing their testimony because the stories start to sound very, very similar. Then they ask, quote, do you belong to an oath-bound organization bound together by covenants and oath to stand by each other? Answer, I do not and have never heard of such an organization. So again, it's becoming clear that this is this is bigger, it's it's more organized, and there's a lot more to the story than they realize. Oh, this is great here. This is the part I was talking about earlier. I asked if it was not a fact that in the beginning the prophet, meaning Joseph Smith, did not proclaim to the world that the principle was not being practiced while the brethren were entering it. Yes, but the conditions were different than now. One said it was not meant for the church then, and Brother Smith, so this is John Henry Smith, said it was never meant for the church, but was an individual matter. Ah, there it is again. Their play, later fundamentalists will use this. They're plagiarizing John Henry Smith. He needs credit for this. So he's, this is. Fundamentalists, start using your citations. Seriously. So he's, he's handing them this rationale. It's not a church matter. It's an individual matter. And again, that goes back to this, this PR disaster that's going on around them. As a church, you can't say, yes, the LDS church supports and teaches plural marriage. You can't do that. So, but you believe it. So what's the answer then? Well, it's an individual matter. It's on you. You take the responsibility. You take the risk. We leave it at that. The church doesn't practice polygamy. Exactly. How could a church practice polygamy? Yep. All right. Next case. So we move ahead a few months. They now call in Israel Barlow. They call him Israel Barlow Jr., He's really Israel Barlow III. Now, pay attention to this last name. This is important to fundamentalists yeah. who many of them carry the Barlow name. Barlows are considered sort of the McConkie family in the FLDS. Yep. So three of his brothers are John Y. Barlow. Very important. I mean, he and Musser, obviously, are the kind of the, the two heads there for a long period of time. Another brother, Ianthus W., usually called I.W. Barlow, and Edmund F. Barlow. So all three of these guys will go to prison um, as part of the 15 in 1945. So this is, you know, this is the, the greatest generation, really, for, for fundamentalists. So very well-known family. So Hiram Smith. So this is uh, another and, of... Sorry, yeah. John Y. Barlow starts the Council of Friends, which starts modern fundamentalism. Yes. So this is a family that will be at the head of things from then until... Really, until I mean the Barlow boys. Yeah, I mean, yeah. This is still, this is still the a Barlows very are family. even as the FLDS are moving away. They're still prominent Barlow family within the faithful FLDS, and from those who have left in the town, the Barlows run Short Creek right now in the government. Yep. So yeah, these these guys are not going anywhere. So Hiram Smith. So this is Hiram Max Smith, son of Joseph F. Smith, and he's. It's interesting. But you very quickly get a sense of the the attitudes of the twelve. So you've got Lyman who's not only the president of the 12, but very much takes an active role. You've got Hiram Smith, who's a very pointed questions too. There's no messing around with him. So he asks Barlow, have you a general idea or impression that polar marriages are performed now? Yes, sir. 
Was it your general understanding and was it your knowledge of the general conditions that we oppose all new plural marriages? My general understanding was for several years after the manifesto, there were no more plural marriages, but conditions since that time have changed me. Hearing rumors, you changed your mind? What steps did you ever take to find out if it was right? Apostle Woodruff changed my opinion. So here's another guy who's going to get brought up a lot. So this is Abraham O. Woodruff, uh, son of Wilford Woodruff, very young son, and kind of thought to be his favorite toward the end of his life. So so Abram uh, takes plural wives himself, performs some marriages, encourages others to perform them, but then dies down in Mexico because he didn't, and his, one of his plural wives, because they didn't want to be inoculated against smallpox. So we'll get some, we'll get some vaccination in here just to spice things up. <laughs> um, so Woodruff is going to be actually more of a scapegoat than a real figure as we go along. So uh, more questions. They decide we're going to disfellowship Barlow, but then bring him back a month later to show why he then shouldn't be excommunicated. So that is very much the process that happens. So often we'll disfellowship first, gather some more evidence, see if they can talk them into uh, becoming more in line with them, and then they'll bring him back again. So a month later he comes back, apparently gets a little emotional, and he says, not having access to the inner councils of the priesthood, it has been hard to tell sometimes what was so and what was expected. So again, this, this deal of if you're in the inner circles, it's a little different. And they're, they're, the apostles are constantly trying to tell them there's no such thing as an inner council. And this time, they seem to mean it. I mean, you ha- yeah, you have George F. Richards who wants to have dead women sealed to him, but living plural marriages among the 12 don't happen anymore. Sort of. <laughs> Got to have teasers every now and again. So then Barlow tells about he's at a state conference and the visiting general authority comes up to him after him and he says, you know, I know you've been praying. This is the word of the Lord to you. Seek out some good girl and marry her. And they immediately, whoa, whoa, who said that? Who was it? And he tells him it's Mariner W. Merrill, who, again, helpfully, also happens to be dead, as is Abraham Woodruff. So as often as they can, they're going to put it on folks that have died. So then Barlow asks for some more time, and he says, Brethren, I don't want to be in contempt or be cut off the church. I would rather die than lose my membership in the church. But there are other people who I think should tell you what you want other than me. I do not want to betray my brethren. That line doesn't go over well, because the apostles are like, whoa, hey there, you need to be in harmony with us, not this this pro-plural marriage crowd. We're your brethren. We're They're your, your brethren. brethren. They're not your brethren. They're the ones that are they're getting you to do bad things here. So, But they give him two weeks to talk to people, and interestingly, he says, give me two weeks, let me talk to some people and see if I can get cleared. So he's got to get out of some of these agreements he's made that he's not going to spill the beans. So they reconvene. Then here's the fun part. Barlow creates this tale that he'd married the wife before Abraham O. Woodruff had died in 1904 and produces a letter. He's got evidence with him this time. But it's a copy of the letter, and it refers to the marriage and has a date on it. What more can you ask for? What's the date? So this is so Woodruff dies in 1904. So this is this is all pre-Second Manifesto. This is all above board. Heber J. Grant is immediately suspicious. So they leave Barlow there. I think they're at the bishop's building this day. Then they go and find Barlow's cousin, 
who is either also a plural wife of his or I think a sister of the plural wife who had made the copy. She blows the cover. So she tells him how she had added a couple lines to both the original letter and the copy. Come back, tell him, Wyman's ticked, Grant's ticked. Grant stands up. Brother Barlow has committed a forgery on the honor of a dead member of this quorum. I mean, you can just picture this <laughs> happening. It's such a, wow. a great scene. Um, oh, and this is wonderful, too. So the next person to speak is Rudger Clausen. No one today knows who Rudger Clausen is. Um, he apparently was the world's most boring speaker. Um, so Leonard Arrington's diaries are coming out, and he, on several occasions, talks about boring speakers that he had listened to, and he, he puts Rudger Clausen right there at the top. But at the time, he's a very important guy. Rudger Clausen was president of the Quorum of the Twelve for quite a while. This is later on. And in fact, had he lived uh, it was like two years more, he would have been president of the church. So at the time, very well known. Um, today, not so much. But So he pipes up and says, Brother Bartle has been before us a number of times and has been subjected to the strictest scrutiny and has declined to answer the question. The reason he gives seemed to be that he would betray a sacred trust to him if he gave this information. I have not discovered any disposition of Brother Barlow to resist the brethren outside of the position that he takes of betraying a sacred trust. We have pressed him very closely each time to give the information. Brother Barlow has come today for the first time, told us that he has taken a plural life, and when he asked to perform the ceremony, he has told the party in the place. Brother Clausen continuing stated that he was willing to take Brother Barlow's word. Heber J. Grant, again, not having it. To my mind, the remarks of Brother Clausen are entirely out of place and should be discouraged after Brother Barlow's actions here today, and especially where a man lies. Now, why is Clausen talking like this? He's got a dirty little secret that I don't think anyone else in the quorum at the time knows. So in 1990, two of Clausen's grandsons, both journalists, write a very underappreciated biography of him. Part of their research outlines... I think for the first time publicly, Clausen's plural marriage to Pearl Udall in August 1904. For those keeping score at home, that is after the Second Manifesto. So here we have yet another church leader complicated and tangled yes. in this messy, messy business. Why do we need to be going after Brother Barlow? I think we should just take his word. He's good. Let's, let's move on here. Um, Clausen apparently had been married by Matthias Cowley. And if it's anything like the other marriages that are described in these trials, he's probably oath-bound to not reveal any of the details. And it never is. As far as I can tell, no one at the time knew of this marriage. If they did, I, I really find it hard to believe that it wouldn't, A, have come up somewhere, and B, that he wouldn't have gotten in trouble to some level. And these guys grew up as kids with uh, the culture of blood oaths. Uh, we take things very seriously, but it's not now just a spiritual oath or a blood oath. I mean, they know what plural marriage means to not only the church, to their neighbors, but to their friends. I mean, there are consequences if this gets out to anyone. Absolutely. And it's a consequence if the church president knows about it. And I find it very interesting. So Matthias Cowley, obviously, is going to get grilled as much as anyone. And uh, Clausen's marriage never seems to come up. So Clausen doesn't spill the beans. Cowley doesn't spill the beans on him. And uh, it just seems to land in the dustbin of history until I think the grandsons turn it back up. And it seems like most of the Clausen family 
I don't think knew about it either, which is very interesting. That is so, very interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, no one is buying Barlow's story. Uh, so the next suggestion is, well, let's go get this plural wife and see if she'll tell us when it happened, who did it, where, all the nitty-gritty. Uh, Barlow, um, I, I, I don't think she could come. Can we go find her? Uh, I, uh, she's under quarantine. You had better excuses back then, you know, smallpox. She's quarantine. Under quarantine. Interesting. She can't come talk to us. Uh, in the meantime, they talk to this woman's brother, and he is very faithful member, very much willing to abide by the the twelfth council. He's you know this this story is bunk. Uh, there's no way that he married her in 1904. He tells them it, it, my understanding was that Matthias Cowley wanted to marry her, and so uh, you've got all the and there's these stories because no one's telling anyone else anything. Two guys are courting the same potential plural wife without knowing the other one's involved. Happens all the time. And so finally, they excommunicate Someone Barlow. Someone please hmm. write a romance novel about that. A oh. Early turn of the century romance novel about a plural wife being courted by two gents. Anita Stansfield, this, this story is waiting for you <laughs> right here. All right, so Barlow, they finally excommunicate him. He's not even there. But keep in mind, they still don't figure out the real story. So we leave him hanging for a while. The next guy, easily the best name, is Charles Wolfenden. He's a British convert. He uh, he goes back to Britain on a mission in 1903, so right before the Second Manifesto. Doesn't last long. Francis Lyman, who's apparently everyone's worst nightmare if you do something wrong, deals with him for, quote, an illicit intercourse with a lewd woman. Their phrasing at that time was just a lot of fun. So, unfortunately, he'd just been sustained as high counselor and stake YMMIA president. So, not surprisingly, he's released from those positions. A couple years goes by. At some point, he marries, marries a plural wife. He claims it was done in 1903 by Abraham O. Woodruff. And this is where the Twilight Zone music comes on because this is exactly like Barlow's story. And had they not figured out Barlow's deal, he might have gotten away from it. But... Uh, doesn't happen. So he writes so a letter. So the good old 1903 excuse isn't working anymore. Yeah. Abraham O. Woodruff married you? I've heard that one before. <laughs> heard nice that try. one before. Get a new excuse. So he writes a letter to Lyman as president of the quorum. He says, we were asked if we were willing to take the responsibility on our own shoulders if trouble should come and not hold the church responsible. We answered that we were. We also re were requested not to divulge to anyone who performed the ceremony and we made solemn promise that we would hold sacred the trust, not presuming that the matter was being withheld from those in authority, did they wish to know. So it's, oh, I find this period so interesting because it's, what do you know? Do you know much? How much do you know? Okay, you know a lot. Okay. So and there's oaths and secrecy and yeah. really people following other people and trying to expose them and the press is waiting and the government is waiting and really the underground period doesn't go doesn't stop it just goes further underground. Yep. It's a, it's a different situation but it's it's very much underground again. Yep. So Lyman writes him back says, "Nope, nice try. This this story is bunk. We've had Barlow in." Then he says, we think it was in 1909 and was performed by Judson Tolman. So that's a name you got to remember for the rest of the episode. He's a patriarch. Interestingly, he is from Bountiful, as was Israel Barlow that we just talked about. I'm from Barlow. I'm from Bountiful. And at some point, there's got to be a cemetery tour because there's all sorts of interesting folks buried there. 
And it's interesting, it, Lyman doesn't, um, well, I, I guess by this time, Tolman has come in and has spilled a little bit of the beans. So slowly, they're pulling the curtain back. So Wolfenden's like, all right, we've got to try something else. So he has his sister write a letter to Francis Lyman and creates this whole supposed conversation with the, the plural wife's uh, mother and, you know, a very believable situation. No, they're not having that either. So now this is, rather than having him disciplined by the 12, this is all handled down in the beaver stake. And so there's, there's constant letters from stake president to Lyman, Lyman back. And at one point, the, the president writes a letter and he says, you know, we, we excommunicated him as directed by you. Lyman writes back, he's like, oh, no, no, we got to get rid of that phrase. I, I didn't tell you to do anything. This was all a local matter. And so, again, I was like, hmm, that sounds familiar. Church discipline is a local issue. Individual, yep, the not church. Are not, are not trying to tell local leaders what to do. So uh, he's excommunicated. Okay, now, to me, the most interesting case is Judson Tolman. So unlike the other guys that we've talked about so far, he's older, much older. He's born in 1826, so he's 84 in 1910 when they bring him in. So he's, I mean, he's the generation even before Mormonism. So he's baptized in Iowa, and, and so he kind of has a, a, a longer view of things than some of these other guys. And his first wife dies. Two of his plural wives divorce him. These are all long before the, the Woodruff Manifesto. But then he marries one last time, not totally sure when, but probably 1908. Apparently the family has found that he had this supposed plural wife. Her children were sealed to both of them. So they, they're, they're thinking that's when it happened. But this plural wife isn't really the issue. The issue is that Tolman has been marrying other people. And they're, they're hearing hints, they're hearing some rumors, and they're trying to get to the bottom of it. So again, like with Barla, they disfellowship him and then say, we're going to bring you back. You tell us why we shouldn't excommunicate you. Remember, he's 84. The day he's supposed to come meet the 12, he hops on the train to Bountiful, but goes north and ends up in Clearfield. <laughs> and so Tolman State President gets a call. Luckily, they had telephones or this never would have happened and says, um, I have Judson Tolman here and he doesn't know what's going on. He seems to think he's supposed to be meeting with the 12, but he's in Clearfield. So they put him back on the train. The stake president gets on a bountiful, and they get him there. So, again, this is a lifetime movie waiting to happen. I love it. And so they start grilling him. There's lots of I don't knows. I mean, he's 84. Memory doesn't seem to be great. Still there somewhat, though. So he tells them about... I'm all for historical accuracy, but can we just assume, for safety's sake, that he has a long beard in this story, just as we're visualizing Actually, this? I think I did find a picture of him, and I'm pretty sure he does. Okay, fair. So if you don't have a beard in this, like, you're doing it wrong. So so they start grilling him. He, he fesses up to five marriages that he's performed, but that still leaves about ten that still no details on. Now, this is the key part. How did you get this authority? Mr. Judson Tolman, you're a patriarch, but you know how does that work? He says, well, I talked to my stake president. This is the same stake president who got him on the train and who's sitting in the room with them. And the stake president apparently had told him he could do this one marriage. They're, neither can quite remember a date, but it's 
pre-Second Manifesto. But so, yeah, Tolman's like, oh, yeah, my stake president told me to do it. And the stake president, you can imagine, is wanting to, to punch him at this point. Don't, don't blame me. And uh, then they ask him, well, these people that came to you to get married, did they have recommends? Yeah, some of them did. Were they signed? And the one name he mentions is Byron Sessions. And that got my interest because this is my wife's great-great-grandfather from Wyoming. Interesting. So doing a little family history on him, turns out he marries a late plural wife. Matthias Cowley does it. And no one in the family knew about it. And turns out he's released a stake president because of this. So, you know, you can't get far from any of these people in Mormon history. So then they start talking specific marriages. Okay, did you marry this guy and this lady this year? And he denies everything. So the ones he does own up to, they would do them at night when it was dark so that you couldn't totally be sure who was there in any case. The person performing wasn't totally sure who he was marrying. The people he was marrying weren't totally sure who had married them. So you've got, you know, kind of some cloak and dagger. He also tells them he's oath-bound, no details. Well, didn't you know the names? I didn't care to know the names. Didn't you keep a record? No, I told them to keep a record. He has, <laughs> they have complete deniability in all of these. <laughs> then they ask him about his own plural marriage. Where I'm just wondering, I'm just thinking about all of these excuses and strategies. Let's say a modern-day problem. Your bishop calls you in for, he's worried about what you've been blogging online. You've been blogging some things that's a little controversial or Facebooking something, and you say, well, actually, you know, I was talking to the state president, and he told me that. If you use that as an excuse, your word against his, he said he didn't do it. You say, no, it wasn't his. It was a former state president. I mean, that's kind of essentially what we're doing, or like, I didn't write that. So and so and so wrote it. Oh, no. We have screenshots. <laughs> yeah, screenshots <laughs> would, have, uh, would have been very helpful at this time. So then they ask him his own plural marriage, and we get the best exchange in all of these trials. Why couldn't you remember who married you? He had a mask on. After the man married you, did he take the mask off? No. Did he congratulate you? Yes, with the mask on. Wow. That one made me laugh when I read that. So then they ask him, well, so what were the words that you used when you sealed them? And he says, I tried to remember the sealing ceremony from the temple as best I could. That doesn't go over well either. So they're done with him for the afternoon. Then they bring in another guy from, um, I can't remember if from Bountiful also, but Davis County somewhere. Davis County, that's, that's where all the action's happening here. So they get him in and they... Uh, the irony in that is there's a huge snuffer movement in Davis County right now. It's maybe the hotbed of the rogue. On. It's Davis <laughs> County life. That's right. So they've gotten... Shape up, Kaysville. Seriously. Um, they've gotten rumors that Tolman had married this man. His name is Dan Muir. He's a bishop. And so, uh, so they start going after him. Brother Lyman read the declaration of President Smith with his resolution to Brother Muir. Do you remember hearing that or seeing that? Muir, I think I do. And then Hiram Smith, you say, Brother Muir, that a great many of the people thought this was a sham? Muir, I certainly do, and up to the present, but I don't think you'll have any more trouble on this score in the future. I think the bishops of wards and presidents of stakes have stopped it. Even the 12 know by this point, yeah, nope. This is, this is way bigger and way more extensive than we thought. So then Muir makes kind of an offhand reference to a crowd that feels like he does. He downplays it, but he does mention that they have meetings. So that's interesting, because this is one of the first hits we get that there's 
some loose organization where people are, are coming together. Then Orsniff Whitney, did you look upon it the same as a marriage in the temple? Muir, yes, sir. I believe that Brother Tolman had the authority. Did you, brethren, suppose he got it from the men who held the keys? Muir says, I suppose so. We did it on our own authority. And then he says, well, our own account, not on the responsibility of any member of the church. So again... That language yep, separating. And something else is coming up for me. So I always sound like a crazy person shouting into the wind that everything has to do with polygamy. And here's another connection, which is we start to see a focus on marriages can only happen in the temple. And that is not necessarily because Mormons saw the temple as the only place that was valid, but really that's a way to control the authority. When you have, you know, before this, as we know, Joseph Smith claims to be sealed in the woods to most of his plural wives and the endowment house and uh, people's living rooms for many, many generations having very specific rules around the temple allows church leaders to control who is performing official sanctioned church marriages. Uh, during Tolman's testimony, he'll talk about performing one ceremony in a buggy. He does one in an ice house, which I think is my favorite. How romantic. I mean, don't you want to tell the grandkids, I remember when we got married in that old ice house. Uh, yeah, I like it. Very pioneer village. My next plural marriage, it. that's where it's happening. <laughs> So they're done with Muir. He's he's pretty belligerent. He's he's says you know the marriage is that the the manifesto is a sham. There's lots of people who think like this and leaves it at that. So then two days later they get Tolman back in and the house of cards starts coming down. So Lyman who is pretty sharp and he's heard enough rumors and connected enough dots starts to draw out that there's a coordinated effort by John W. Taylor, Matthias Cowley, Henry S. Tanner. New name here. So Tanner was Lyman's nephew. He'd served as mission president in California. At the time of all this, he's on the YMMIA general board. And it's so funny how the general boards were just a hotbed. So Sunday school, YMMIA, the YLMIA. And uh, when you start seeing, um, if you read accounts of state conference visits by the 12th, they'll usually bring, you know, maybe a 70 with them, but then all from these board members. And you start paying attention to who they're bringing, and you're like, that's a plural marriage couple right there. Interesting. What well, is, and if you're that? watching the shift from power and the sort of Mormon elite hierarchy class system, they are still plural families, plural men are still in high leadership positions, but now they're not necessarily in the quorum, but they're still given power. Yes, definitely. Yep. Okay, so we got we got John W. Taylor hanging out, Cowley, Henry S. Tanner, Israel Barlow, who we talked about, and some others. But there's this coordinated deal where they're backdating all the marriages before the Second Manifesto. And the one where the, the forged letter from Abraham Woodruff, they've already seen some of this. But now Tolman's kind of giving them the details and saying, you know, this, these are the ringleaders and this was kind of the, the game plan that we used. And let's again, let's talk about this irony, other than the fact that this makes Michael Quinn's job really difficult for his new book. But this idea of these people are now lying about their mar their post-manifesto marriage dates, not to the government, but to their own church because uh, their own church leaders. It's such an interesting tension. Yeah. can't imagine why the, uh, the 12 get more furious as time goes on. They're, uh, they're not having this. So they keep questioning him, and all of his earlier I don't knows start to turn into some maybes, but he's still stonewalling. So they say, all right, we're done. You're, you're excommunicated. We're done with this. 
Okay, so he's excommunicated, then a year and a half goes by, and he comes back before the 12. This time, he's got a couple sons with him, and it's become very clear that the sons have been on his case to come clean. He's old, you want to die with a clear conscience, they're using, you know, deathbed confession as their, their trump card here. So in the meantime, between when Tolman is axed and when he comes back, John W. Taylor has been excommunicated, Matthias Cowley has been disfellowshipped, they've had in some other important figures, and lots of details have come out. So interestingly, in that time, I remember we talked about Henry Tanner, the board member. He's come in, but he's denied everything, and he's denied that anything took place in his office. So Henry Tanner's office, remember that one. He only gets disfellowship because they can't really find anything on him. So, oh, I forgot one point about Tanner that's so entertaining. So he is a home missionary, basically a ward missionary at the time in Salt Lake State. State conference, they're uh, sustaining leaders, and they do kind of, you know, a group of, who knows what it would have been, but involve the home missionaries. Some guy stands up and says, I object to Henry S. Tanner, sits down. And everyone's like, what? Where did that come from? He, uh, Tanner is a judge. He's quite well known. And the Trib hears about it. Story about it blows up. Remember, he's Lyman's nephew. So this is, this is the family image that's being tarnished now. And then so he, he ends up marrying one last wife in 1909, gets him back in the news. But the best part of him, uh, 1930, they have a family celebration and various family members will read little snippets of his life. And one of them was after 1900. During these years, he spent some of his time getting married. <laughs> I love that one. Um, okay, so Tolman is in. He's talking about what's going on. And he is, his sons have worked their magic. And he starts naming names, telling details. So he reveals that there is an organization that's slowly coming together, mostly meeting in Henry Tanner's office. And you have to figure Lyman shaking his fist saying, that Henry Tanner, I knew he was lying to me. But he still, Tolman still hedges on some things, and so his son asks for some time to labor with him. So they give him a couple weeks. Son convinces him, come on, Dad, let's tell the truth here. So he remembers, they come back, he remembers another marriage he's performed for some guy named Joseph Musser. And then he talks about this system where people were referred by Matthias Cowley, Nathan Clark, or Henry Tanner, and would sometimes pay him a fee for doing the ceremony. So it's, it's, it's slowly becoming much more of an organization. This isn't just individuals anymore. Now, before we dismiss the fee part, that was a model that Brigham Young instituted. He would charge sure. for ceilings as well. So Yep. Um, he talked about one he got 20 bucks for it, which I forgot to look up. It was a decent amount of money. That's that a good, time. yeah. It's, it's a well, you know, when here. you're doing it on the black market marriages, prices go up a yeah, little bit. It's, so he also gives some more info on this idea of um, blaming dead apostles. So he names names again. He says, Nathan Clark and Israel Barlow came up with this idea of blaming Mariner Merrill and Abraham Woodruff. I'm telling you, next time you guys get called into your off in the bishop's office, blame it on Abraham Woodruff. It, it, they may not buy it, but it's a good excuse. It's a good I mean, Mormon tradition. I like heritage. Yeah, history. That would actually be a good shirt, too. Abraham Woodruff told me to do it. <laughs> should have these at Sunstone. So, a couple weeks later, Tolman finally gives in, and he gives them a list. Names, dates, places, and clears up all sorts of mysteries. So, you remember earlier, Israel Barlow, 
the bullcrap letter from Abraham Woodruff, Tolman married him. It was not before the Second Manifesto. It was very much well after the Second Manifesto. Charles Wolfenden had a sister lie for him, makes up this conversation with the mother-in-law. Nope, Tolman also, very much after the Second Manifesto. Um, oh, one I forgot to mention earlier. Probably the most publicized case during this period is a guy named Alpha Higgs. So he is a, again, a board member, YMMIA board member. He was an associate editor at the Improvement Era, very, very close to Heber J. Grant. So Grant kind of takes this personally that Higgs has been leading this double life and hadn't told him about it. Well, so. I mean, he's in good company, though, because this is a lot of people around him. But are we to believe that we're taking this 84-year-old man who got lost in the train's opinion as authority over other people? This is the problem. If, if we don't have the getting on the train to Clearfield story, it makes life a lot easier. But Lyman has heard enough and has pieced together enough rumors that it seems pretty solid. The, the timing on some of them may be a year or so off, but it seems like as far as the people and places and general timeline, it's pretty spot on. Um, so this Alpha Higgs gets in the newspapers, huge case. I mean, every newspaper in Utah incessant on it. Heber J. Grant's friend, yes. living a double life. Mm -hmm. um, the, the plural wife is Bessie Badger. So she is a, I think she's a sister of Carl Badger, who is Reed Smoot's secretary. So, and the dad is a state senator, really well-known family. So both parties are very well-known, makes for great copy. And then after it blows up in the news, they disappear. They skip town and uh, are gone forever. So the Alpha Higgs mystery, yeah, it was Tolman. Henry S. Tanner, who was adamant that Judson Tolman didn't marry him and that his office was not a meeting place, yeah, Tolman married him. They meet at his office all the time. Tolman lists seven marriages that took place in the office, not to mention who knows how many meetings. Now, this is interesting. I'd never heard this before, too. So Tolman, according to his list, was the one who married Joseph Musser to this late wife, not Matthias Cowley. And then there's just a last name, Jeffs. Hmm. I'm almost positive this is David Jeffs, father of... Ruland Jeffs. Jeffs. Yep. Um, no wife listed, but it's Nettie Timpson. So as... A, and then at the bottom list, it says, all recommended by Cowley, Matthias Cowley, Tanner, Henry S. Tanner, or Nathan Clark. So these are kind of your three that are running the show. Now, as we know, uh, Ruland Jeffs, father David Jeffs, converts Ruland to fundamentalism. He becomes eventually the one-man leader of the FLDS. His son is Warren Jeffs, who has sort of brought destruction to the FLDS group. Yep. So, Tolman's list just says the marriage took place in 1909. Ruland Jeffs is born December 1909. Pretty good case, I'd say. Well, that's a good case. But this list is so fascinating because now you have Barlow's, Musser's, Jeffs, not on the list, but he mentions them everywhere, Kelsh's and Timpson's all hanging out together. Now, all those names are very popular fundamentalist names even today and, and have a lot of power. And I want to say something about Ruland Jeffs because we do know about his upbringing because he talks about it in his uh, autobiography. Ruland Jeffs grew up for a long time not knowing that his family was a plural family. And I would assume that a lot of kids born from these early unions probably experienced it similar. They didn't know 
for a long time that they were part of a plural family because of all of this controversy. Uses a different last name for a period of time. Yes. It's a, it's a very... Uh, Jennings was his uh, surname. Yeah. So, yeah, as a kid growing up in this, I mean, it was confusing enough as an adult. You know, what's who am I listening to? What should I believe here? But as a kid, this would have been a very, very confusing period. And so. yeah, and the irony is these aren't just like strangers. These are your neighbors. And you find out, oh, they might be your half-siblings or they might be cousins or something. Yep. Yeah, it's a very confusing time. But it's really interesting to consider the trajectory of all the people involved in these going forward. So some of them, Judson Tolman, you know, he, he's old. He wants to die with a clear conscience. He's rebaptized very soon after. It seems like this list was one of the conditions. Um, he's rebaptized. His blessings are apparently restored. So some of them uh, really didn't have any intention of going rogue or, you know, whatever you might say. They, they stay with the, the main body of the church. But then we start to see this different trajectory with the Barlows, the Mussers, the Jeffses, the Kelshes, the Timsons. You start to see what becomes the later groups coming together here. But what I found so interesting during all of this period is, we talked about this earlier, the 1886 revelation doesn't come up. I, I didn't see it come up ever. The idea of a council of friends... I mean, I guess you could argue that this oath-bound something or other sort of sounds like it, but to my reading, the Council of Friends doesn't come up here at all. So it's it's sort of a different period, a different depiction of this proto-fundamentalist period. And one theory for that, I would say, uh, just like the Mormon Church has become more interested in the first vision as it's you know, foundational story later. That was not the initial story that missionaries told when they went out. And the first vision wasn't really interesting to people. And then it becomes sort of this huge cornerstone of the LDS church. Same thing with this revelation. It's because they didn't need the revelation. It's because they knew that everybody that they were talking to knew what the, knew the doctrine. They knew how authority worked. That was not the thing being contested. Yep. The thing being contested was obedience to the brethren. Exactly. Well, and it's... I'm surprised, actually, that the people who are being brought before them to testify don't just throw it back in the Twelve's face more to say, hmm, seem to remember a lot of you were married after 1890. Am I, correct me if I'm wrong, but, uh, you know, they don't seem to do that much, which I thought was interesting because... You know, a very knee-jerk response of it, well, you guys did it. Why is it not okay now? Really? And, you know, I wonder, and just posing a theory, it's this sort of passive aggression language that when we read the minutes that you read, it's this dance that we're doing where the truth is under the surface, but we're talking this language. And you can't help but wonder if perhaps maybe that's why Mormons are more passive aggressive. It's not just our obsession with being nice, but it's this idea of being trained in doublespeak for generations where the truth is here and we speak a different language to sort of, you know, contextualize it. Yep. It's a fascinating period. The minutes make for fascinating reading. So, Well, Brian, you're a lot of fun. You know a lot of stuff, and I am excited. Tell us the plans for this book. So I envision it being some sort of kind of a documentary history. So you, mainly the, the, the text with some annotation to try to put things in context. So that, that first 50 years um, up to Musser's death in 54 
is, I mean, that's, that's where the foundations are set. But it really hasn't been fleshed out too much. You have, you know, the very end of Quinn's article gets into that period. You have, obviously, Brian Hale's book, which is fantastic and, and draws on a lot of this, this type of material. But that early period can use more. And it's so interesting. What's beautiful about this podcast is it's gotten a lot of the listeners really excited about their own family history, which is exciting. And so what I think, I'm going to give a challenge to listeners out there. You guys can be part of bringing this history to light. Do some detective work. Be the Salt Lake Tribune reporter doing the digging. Look into your family history, especially my fundamentalist friends out there. Look at these records because Brian needs this stuff at journals, um, marriage certificates, things like that. Uh, D. Michael Quinn needs this for his book. And you're not going to just find this sitting um, out in plain sight. Often, where where would they look, Brian? Well, journals are, are fun, but you've got to know what you're looking for. So, you know, you're not going to find an, an entry that says, probably, Matthias Kelly married us in Wyoming. And you know, today I was secretly married to yeah, plural marriage. It's letters interestingly, have been a good source because for some reason they, they felt more um, candid in those letters, I think, than sometimes when they're writing their journal. So Birth dates of, of children. Birth dates are very helpful because that's kind of hard to explain those away. Exactly. Okay, so um, we'll connect you there and let's talk a little bit more about Benchmark because I think people can, they buy things online as well if they're remote. Sure. Yeah, we've got... Uh, we try to cater more to the, the Mormon history side of things. So it's theology as well, but fantastic biographies, histories, documentary compilations, things like that. Uh, we have a huge selection of used and out of print stuff too, which is very helpful because sometimes, you know, family histories, local histories, really hard to find after they go out of print. So. And you can pretty much get anything, right, that yep. people are looking for. And this is what I would say to people. I have a tradition of, you know, a lot of you have supported this podcast, which I appreciate because um, it supports the research and the work that I do. I try to support Mormon scholars and, you know, plug their stuff here. And one of the places where that also supports Mormon scholars that we should support as listeners is Benchmark Books because they have been – you know, selling Mormon, it's a, it's a very small niche and yet, um, all the people there are fantastic and they've been supporting all these scholars. So one of the ways you can support Mormon studies and this great work is supporting benchmark books. So, uh, go down to the shop downtown, uh, meet them at Sunstone. You guys yep. are going to be at Sunstone this Sunstone summer. Sunstone every year. They have a huge bookstore with all kinds of titles. So if you're thinking about buying a Mormon book, wait until Sunstone, come to Sunstone, uh, buy it at the table and support Benchmark. Okay, Brian, anything else you want to add? Thanks for letting me be here. I've listened to pretty much every episode, some of them more than once, and uh, it was fun. A little bit nerve-wracking to be here, but very fun. Do you have a favorite episode other than this one, of course? Ooh, you know, honestly, the one I've listened to many, many times is Brian Hales talking about the birth of fundamentalism. Ah, okay. So, yeah. Brian's been in the shop a lot. He, um, yep. Has done a signing with his... Yep, we've had Brian in a couple times, so, yep, we like him. That's great. Okay, well, thank you so much, uh, other Brian. There we go. I spell mine the right way, though. <laughs> Have a good night.
sure to support Utah women making local music. If you like the music on this podcast, it comes from a band called Lady Murasaki. You can check them out at ladymurasaki.bandcamp.com.